Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 2. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. The best orchestra, the best choir I've ever been exposed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bless us every week. You lead us in worship through song. You prepare us for worship through the preaching of the word. Every time I hear that song, Ancient of Days, it reminds me of my, my brother in the faith, co-laborer, Robert Koneman, who died at 53 of brain cancer, but when he was diagnosed, he told me, our God is not a novice. And I can't ever sing that song without thinking about that. And through his entire treatments to the day he died, he said, our God is not a novice. He is the ancient of days. I would encourage you, not everyone can do this. Uh, some of you have ministries that you don't need to leave. You need to stay focused there. You can't do everything in a church. But for those of you that are looking for ways to serve, disaster relief training is a real benefit to the kingdom. My first mission trip was with disaster relief 30 years ago. Uh, and, and so we're having this training, but don't be, don't be deceived by the fact that it's three days. Some of the training is just an afternoon. The training I'm doing is going to be just Friday afternoon. So it may only take you a couple of three hours to do some of the training. And, and then you get credentials to go into these disaster areas. And every time you go, you not only meet physical material needs, you, you have gospel opportunities. And so it's not for everyone, but it's for some of you. And so pray about that. It is a remarkable ministry that our Southern Baptist Convention has, and it's unique, and it's not just social work. You have a pickaxe in one hand and a gospel in the other, and th that is a wonderful combination. So pray about that. Some of you just can't get off of work to, for the training. I, I realize that. Don't feel the guilt of that. But if you can, it would be a wonderful way uh, to serve the kingdom. Well, if you would, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 22 this morning. But to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying, if you would look with me in verse 18... So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered. So you can see that this took, John wrote this years after he was raised from the dead. They remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father, may we believe the scripture and the word that the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken. May we believe even more today in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Give us ears to hear, eyes to behold. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the cover story in this week's edition of, of National Review is about a prosecutor who doesn't prosecute. Uh, criminal justice professor Barry Latzer writes of a particular district attorney in one of our major, most largest cities who recommends against incarceration in every single pretrial case with the exceptions of homicide or Class B violent felonies. Of course, the problem with that is that there are numerous violent crimes that don't fall under those classes. The question that Latzer poses is this. How does releasing people arrested for crimes like these help any community, especially given the high likelihood of repeated crime? And Latzer also discusses this DA's promise to dismiss, get this, every misdemeanor or divert the case out of criminal out of the criminal justice system. But these minor crimes, so-called minor crimes, constitutes 79% of the prosecutions in this DA's particular city. The kind of crimes that would make it unsafe for, for families, dangerous uh, for children, and so on. This is Latzer's conclusion. <clears throat> this district attorney is more concerned with the welfare of the offenders than with that of their victims or of the communities they despoil. But the more lenient he is with offenders, the more they will repeat their crimes as word spreads on the streets that there is no enforcement. Think about the effects of unenforced shoplifting laws in San Francisco, for instance, which has led to gangs boosting goods with impunity, closing down or crippling scores of businesses. Leniency victimizes law-abiding residents. Analogously, imagine if we lived in a world where the Lord was lenient on sin. We would not want to live in a world like that. We'd have no hope of justice, and evil would reign unchallenged. It's the Lord's hatred of sin, his anger, his wrath on sin that causes him to restrain sin both at the personal and community levels. That's why we remember Adolf Hitler's. There's not many Adolf Hitler's because of God's restraining grace. Without this restraint, it wouldn't even be safe for us to walk out of our door or to leave our driveways. The fact that stealing and the fact that violence are not the consistent experience of each of us in our daily lives is evidence that the one who sits enthroned, the Ancient of Days, hates sin. His anger, his wrath is on sin. His hatred of sin makes our lives livable in a fallen and broken world.
Well, today, we see the first glimpse of the Son of God's hatred of sin. His anger, his wrath on sin. It's a preview, a coming attraction of the day when the wrath of the Lamb, and that is the phrase that John uses in Revelation 6.16, when the wrath of the Lamb will fall on all unrighteousness. In other words, the wrath of the Son of God assures us that all things will ultimately be made new. Now, not everyone believes that. Not everyone believes that the Son of God has wrath on sin. And the result of that is misplaced zeal. We all have zeal, but those who don't believe that will have zeal for the wrong pursuits. And that's the first thing we see starting in verse 12. Zeal for the wrong pursuits. Now notice in verse 12, after this, after he had performed that first sign miracle in Cana, turning the water into wine, we saw its significance last week, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Capernaum was where Jesus would ultimately live during his earthly ministry and probably in Peter's house. But the fact that verse 12 gives us this apparent incidental detail drives home the historicity of this account. John was there. John was an eyewitness. He's telling you what happened. But notice in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Wherever you are in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. It's called the Aliyah, the Ascent. Uh, you have the Psalms of Aliyah, the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. So uh, that represents the reality that Jerusalem uh, was the place where God dwelt. But notice, John, throughout this gospel, is going to mention three Passovers. It can get a little confusing if we don't uh, point that out. Uh, the first Passover we read about here. Uh, the second Passover we read about in chapter 6, verse 4. And then we read about the final Passover that Jesus uh, will partake in. And we know that is the, the week of his crucifixion. You read about that in, in chapters 13 to 20, 21. Uh, but this is the first. And so the, the, the first Passover um, is found in this passage, and it's significant for us. But keep in mind, the Passover was one of the three annual feasts that... All Jewish males were required to celebrate in the calendar year. We know that from Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. And so there were three of them. So you had the Passover, you had Pentecost, and you had the booths. But Passover was clearly the most important of those three festivals. Um, it commemorated 
the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage through the blood of the animals that were sacrificed. And we know that from Exodus. And of course, we recognize that that delivered them from political uh, bondage, but it pointed to a greater deliverance an ultimate exodus that would be achieved through the ultimate Lamb of God and and through the greater Moses. So the Passover was a celebration of what God had done in the past, but it was also looking forward to the one who would come and bring about the ultimate and most enduring exodus. And so the one here probably took place On April the 7th, for you history uh, buffs, April the 7th in the year 30 A.D. Uh, We know that just by piecing things together. For instance, the temple had been uh, under renovation for 46 years. And so it was probably April the 7th of 30 A.D. And and Josephus, uh, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that in Passover week there were around 255,000 lambs that were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple. Remarkable, isn't it? Indeed, notice in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. These were the animals that would be sacrificed. And the money changers sitting there. So the temple was the second temple, actually. The first temple had been built around a thousand years earlier by Solomon. And we know that because of Israel's apostasy, Judah's apostasy, uh, that temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Around 520 B.C., God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, to call the people to to rebuild the temple after they had been delivered out of Babylon after 70 years of bondage, as prophesied by Jeremiah. By 516 B.C., the second temple had been rebuilt. And that second temple was was, uh, designed to foster uh, messianic hopes as God's people waited for Messiah to come. Well, that second temple now had been under renovation, okay, by Herod, and that renovation had begun somewhere around 20 B.C. This is the temple uh, that is being spoken of here, Uh, and this temple had four divisions. The first and the largest was the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place where most of us are Gentiles. I know some of you uh, are Jewish, And we praise God for that. But Gentiles were only allowed to come into the court of the Gentiles. Uh, Now, this was a large space. It was 500 yards long. Imagine five football fields. 325 yards wide. It was 35 acres. That was the court of the Gentiles. And then you had uh, the court of the women. And then you had the court of Israel, where only the, the circumcised men of the covenant could enter and then you had the holy of holies well what's taking place here uh in our passage is taking place in the court of the gentiles the largest space but most importantly for us right here is that the purpose of the temple in large part 
it was where God dwelled with his people, and it was where he was to be worshipped, and it was where sacrifices were offered to atone for the sins of the people so that they may have reconciliation with God. But here in the court of the Gentiles, there were two groups of people. You had those who were selling the animals so that they might be sacrificed, and you had the money changers. Now, what's the background there? Well, most of the people who worshipped had to come from out of town. In fact, if you lived uh, in Galilee, you would travel some 90 miles to get to Jerusalem. Now, we have a hard time even driving 90 miles. I mean, they, they would walk 90 miles. And, and so you couldn't bring the animals with you. That would have been too cumbersome. And, and so you, you had to buy the animals that were sacrificed once you got there in Jerusalem for most of the pilgrims. And then there was the problem with the currency. If you were a foreigner, you had to use local currency. And so the currency had to be changed. You, you, you uh, know that. Most of you or many of you have been on international trips, and you, you have to use the local currency. That was the issue here. Now, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27, made allowance for that. Uh, under the law, it, it made allowance for uh, animals to be sold in Jerusalem for those who were from out of town. It made allowance for, for currency to be exchanged for those who were, who were foreigners. But here's the problem. The animals were being sold at too high prices. I mean, these animals were uh, being sold for very high prices, price gouging, if you will. Also, if the inspectors didn't approve of your animal and they would go to school... Uh, to discern whether they could approve an animal or not, uh, it would not be approved. And so extortion was common. Uh, they would take money under the table. Uh, if you want your animal to be approved for sacrifice, you, you better pay under the table. That kind of thing was going on. And to top it all off, Annas the high priest was the mastermind behind the operation. It started at the top with the high priest and the money changers, were, were, they were no more innocent. Uh, these money changers charged as much as two hours of a working man's wages to change a, a half shekel. We know this from his, historical writings. So, so if a man came in with a, a two shekel piece, it would cost him a day's working wage to exchange the currency so that he could worship the living God. But not only was the extortion going on, the location was the problem as well. Prior to this time, prior to Jesus' time, where you see the corruption of Judaism full-blown, there were booths for selling these animals and booths for uh, changing the, the currency, the money changing, that had been set up across the Kidron Valley away from the temple. But now, in the temple, they had changed the space for worship as a place of corrupt business. That's the issue going on. David Gooding says this, These cells should have been left to secular trade. 
unassociated with the activities of the temple. For the temple authorities, not only to allow this trading to go on in the temple courts, but to profit unduly from the sales was not only inappropriate, it was scandalous. Instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by God, they had become middlemen, turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make financial profit out of men's quest for God. And so these people were, were zealous. We're all zealous for something. God has hardwired us to be zealous, right? And that, that's behind our worship. But if you don't fear God, if you don't see that he is a God who judges sin, your zeal will be for the wrong pursuits. Just like with these religious leaders. There may be some here today, you're very zealous, but your zeal is not directed on the true and living God. Well, that brings us to the one who is. We see the zeal for the right pursuit in none other than the Son of God, starting in verse 15. Notice in verse 15, in making a whip of cords, he drove them out. Does that fit your view of Jesus? He drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen, it must have been chaotic. It must have been utter chaos. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Now, why uh, is it different with the pigeons? Simply because they were in cages. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what's remarkable, there's several prophecies. I, I won't give you all of these, but there are several prophecies that hundreds of years ago tell us that one day the temple would be corrupt. For instance, Zechariah 14. Zechariah is writing around 520 B.C., 500 years before Christ. There shall no longer be a trader, uh, that is someone who's making trades, right? There will no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So not only is Zechariah pro, uh, prophesying that one day there will be trading in the house of God, but it's going to be dealt with. And for instance, in Malachi, he prophesied, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, Malachi 3. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And John is telling us that day is here in the Son of God. Now, Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice. Uh, we see it here at the beginning of his ministry in John. A lot of people get confused because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see it at the end of his ministry. He did it twice. And so at the beginning and at the end, on the week of his passion, the week of his crucifixion. And so this is the first. But in both cases, the concern 
is the same. The concern hasn't changed. And we learn from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never contradict themselves, but they give us a composite picture because each one has a particular goal. So they're not telling us everything. John tells us the end of this gospel. He he could have written a whole lot more, but the world couldn't contain all that he could have written. So they didn't write exhaustive accounts. They wrote sufficient accounts. But we learn from the other gospels um, what was happening in this place of worship. Uh, Here we learn what Jesus what he disdains is going on in the temple. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn that it's what's not happening that angers him. So, for instance, in Mark's account, Mark 11, listen to this, verse 17, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7, when he said to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house for prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And so in Mark's account, we see that Jesus' anger is there not only because of what they were doing in the temple, but because of what they weren't doing. The place where God was worshipped, the, the place where God's people gathered for worship was to be a place of prayer. It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Do I see um, the local church as a place of prayer? Uh, does my discipline, do my disciplines, my spiritual disciplines reflect the reality that the church is a place of prayer? Well, they had lost sight of that, but notice that it was a prayer for all the nations. Jesus says in Mark's account that the temple was a place where God's people would gather and pray for the nations. Because all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant, God had said through your seed, all the nations would be blessed. It would be through the seed of Abraham that the nations would be saved. But they had lost sight of that. They had no regard for the nations. They had no regard for prayer. They had no regard for worship. They were very busy being religious people, but they had lost sight of the purpose of corporate worship. And Jesus' anger was a declaration of war on their hypocrisy. Often I'll hear a professing Christian say, I no longer go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. And there's a whole lot wrong with that statement. First of all, the fact that this person professes Jesus but is not committed to the things Jesus is committed to is hypocrisy in itself. That's hypocrisy. You can't profess Christ and not be committed to the body that he died for and it not be hypocrisy. Now, I know people, there are people who are providentially hindered from coming to church. There is a legitimate class known as shut-ins and they want to be here and they long to be here. I met with one this week with Cliff who loves the Lord Jesus and loves 
the local church, but can't be here right now. So we recognize them, and, and we pray for them, and we reach out to them. We love them. But there are others who aren't so committed to Christ's church, and they use excuses like there's hypocrisy there. But I want you to know here, Jesus hates hypocrisy more than you did. But he did not withdraw from the place of corporate worship. He saw himself as an agent of change. He had too much holy zeal to do that. He had too much righteous anger to withdraw. In 2020, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly came out. It was, many considered it the, the Christian book of the year. And if you haven't read it, it is certainly worth your time. It is a remarkable book. I encourage, and we have some copies, by the way. If you, if you would like a copy of that book, come see me after the service. We will give you a copy of that book. If we run out, we'll buy more copies and give it to you. But, but in this book, he, he makes the point that there's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus uh, tells us about his own heart. Tells us that's an important passage. And in Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful truth? And, and so Jesus' description of himself here teaches us that among other things, he's not harsh. He's not temperamental. He's not trigger happy. He's not reactionary. He's not short-tempered. He's not easily exasperated. Indeed, for the repentant, for those who trusted in Jesus, who've turned from their sins, his heart of gentleness is never outmatched by our sins, by our doubts, by our anxieties, by our fears, by our inadequacies, our insufficiencies. They're never outmatched by that, or his gentleness is not. And Ortland writes, he can't ungentle himself toward his own any more than you or I can change our eye color. He can't ungentle himself. I love that statement. With that said, we tend to be one-dimensional when it comes to our natural intuitions of who Jesus is. And so if Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he surely is, we reason from our fallen reason, that's the only way to think of him. But that's why we need our Bibles. Our natural intuitions of God and the Son of God are never robust enough. Here we see the wrath of the Lamb. I'm not putting words in the, John's mouth. Later he will use that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb, in Revelation 6, verse 16. Because the wrath of the Lamb is the hope of the world. It's the hope of the world. And later the disciples would see that. I don't think they saw it at the time. They were slow to learn, just like you and I are. Notice with me in verse 17. His disciples remembered. So they're looking back, it appears. Or maybe 
They remember at that moment. It's really not important to understanding, but it's likely they're looking back. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 9, which is used often. Psalm 69 is picked up in the New Testament often to refer to Christ. and It's a messianic psalm. As we've already seen, the disciples read their Old Testaments, what they would have called the Tanakh. They read it through the lens of the Messiah. All right? And so when they read passage after passage, they had their Messiah lenses on. They could not read their Bible without their lenses. All right? And here we see the kind of zeal the Messiah had and where it was directed. It was directed towards corporate worship and the house of God. I love J.C. Ryle's description of the one whose zeal matches the zeal of Jesus. Here's what he says. This one who's zealous after the example of Jesus sees only one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up with one thing. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, for all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to advance God's glory. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach and work and give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. That's the zeal of one who's having Christ's zeal formed in him or her. Indeed, evidence of this zeal is being committed to the things Jesus was committed to. And here he is committed to the corporate place of worship. It's where God's people worshiped. It was the temple. And here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. I have to ask myself this question. Can that be said of us? We're committed to the same things that Jesus is committed to, and he's committed to the place of corporate worship. Again, there are true, godly, spirit-filled believers who can't be here. They are providentially hindered. But perhaps more epidemic is professing Christians who have little to no zeal for the place of corporate worship especially since the pandemic. There have been Christians who have been committed to Christ's church for decades. And then the pandemic strikes, and they develop new patterns. They're no longer zealous for the things of God. They're no longer zealous for, for corporate worship. Their zeal has been redirected. 
And that's why we need the word of God to sanctify us. Lord, help us. Well, verse 17 was kind of like an excursion for John. He's reflecting back and saying, ah, the zeal Jesus had, it's kind of like a commentary. That's the zeal that was pointed to by the psalmist. But we pick back up in the narrative in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, he just performed his first sign miracle. But they are just enslaved to signs. Jesus answered them, and it's interesting, and he doesn't seem to answer the question, but he does. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is essentially saying that his righteous anger in the temple anticipates, was symbolic of his death and his resurrection. In other words, Jesus didn't lose his temple, uh, temper here. Oftentimes when we get mad, we, we say and do things that, that we regret. It was spontaneous. That's not the anger of God. His anger was calculated, and it was righteous, and it was holy. Generally, our anger is vindictive. We're going after the skin of someone. It's not Jesus' anger. His anger was symbolic, and it was intended for salvation. Jesus is actually predicting the end of this corrupted Jewish religious system here. His body would be the temple. And so the Jewish temple would be needed no more. But he's also doing something else here. He's, he, he's serving all future generations by this act, by what he's saying. He is saying... His future generation, or a resurrection, which will occur some two and a half to three years from then, and the eyewitness testimony of the disciples will forever be the sufficient sign for who he is and what he came to do. Indeed, as the Gospels unfold, we begin to see, and this is, speaks to the historicity of the account, because if I'm, a, if I'm one of Jesus' disciples and I'm writing these Gospels, I would not share a lot of the stuff they share. Because early on we see how they're knuckleheads. They're dumb as bricks. They're slow to learn. They're slow to believe. And they are cowards. They have no convictions but self-preservation. But everything changed. Everything changed. In fact, 10 of the 12 would die as martyrs. And John would be exiled and essentially die as a martyr on the Isle of Patmos. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses of what Jesus was prophesying here. They were eyewitnesses to the reality that Jesus would be raised. And Jesus is saying that is the sufficient sign 
for every person who would ever come. You don't need more evidence. The sign is that he was raised on the third day and the disciples were witnesses to it and they wrote it down for us. I love Billy Graham. He's one of my heroes. He's a hero to many of you. But, and he would often bring celebrities uh, on the stage as a way of substantiating the gospel. And I knew what he was doing, and, and I'm not criticizing it. But what I would submit is we don't need celebrities to substantiate the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ substantiates the gospel. If Jesus Christ was not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if he was raised, and he was, it changes everything. It changes everything. To deny Jesus' resurrection, you have to explain how these disciples, or why these disciples would die for a message they knew was fabricated. And why the Jewish authorities were never able to disprove their claims. One convinced that the resurrection was the definitive sign uh, was a man named Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. And his three-volume treatise on the law of evidence Mike Speakman reads this daily as a part of his discipline, was a foundational text for legal practice in America for many decades. But he decided to apply his approach to evidence, approach uh, to evidence, to disprove Christianity. Founder of Harvard, brilliant man, very influential in law practice. And so he set his sights on the resurrection. He knew if he could disprove the resurrection, Christianity's a farce. But this was his conclusion. By using his methodology, he concluded that the witnesses of the resurrection were so reliable that they would have to be accepted in a court of law. And then he wrote another book. His book, The Testimony of the Evangelists, the four gospels examined by the rules of evidence, which came out in 1846, it remains uncontested to this day. 177 years uncontested. But what he does in that book shows what one can come to terms with if they have eyes to see and ears to hear. And something... The religious leaders clearly didn't have. Look with me in verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This is a renovation, actually. The temple had been built in 520. Herod had begun a renovation. It was a massive renovation. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. As the Messiah, all the yeses and all the amens of God are fulfilled in him. And he knew the temple had served many functions, such as 
It was the place of reconciliation where God reconciled with his people through atoning sacrifice. It was the place of revelation where God revealed himself. It was the place where God resided. It was the place where God ruled. And all of these things were fulfilled, Jesus is saying, in his person and in his work. All of them point to him. Now, in John, there's a number of metaphors that that speak to um, what Jesus would do to portray his death. So we've already seen he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what does that portray? The fact that he was our substitute who died in the place of us for those of us who believe. He's the Lamb of God. Uh, In chapter 3, we're going to see that he is the serpent who is lifted up. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll see that all that means is he was made sin for us. He didn't become a serpent, but our sin was imputed to him, credited to him, and he was punished for our sin. Later in chapter 12, uh, we see him use the metaphor of a grain of wheat who falls, that falls into the ground and dies, and it looks dead, but then it bears fruit, which also points to what his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection would achieve. It would bear fruit. But why does he use the metaphor of the destruction of the temple for his death? That is the question. It's because the cross was the climax of the covenant curses and God's just wrath on sin. The prophets had warned of the visitation of God's curses on the, of the breaking the covenant. And the ultimate expression of that by the prophets was that the temple would be destroyed and God's people would be taken into exile. So it's little surprise that the Lamb of God who brings about what the original exodus pointed us to excises, expels, these other sacrificial animals from the temple. The fact that these animals and the people who were buying them were being exploited revealed the fact that the animal sacrifices and that system fell short. As Hebrews 10 tells us, they could not take away our sins. But praise God for his anger and the Son of God's anger and wrath on sin. The hope of the restoration of all things is God's hatred of sin, and it's that very hatred of sin that took Jesus to the cross. Had Jesus stopped in verses 15 and 16 with the clearing out of the temple, all it would have been would have been a revolution. We've seen movements today, revolutions, Marxist revolutions. And what are they doing? They're trying to destroy institutions They're trying to do that, but reformations, they're centered on heart change. And Jesus was not a revolutionary. He was a reformer. But in order for him to reform would require him to die on the cross for our sins. And and upon his victory over our sin, by his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent his spirit to indwell you individually 
so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, you individual, as a believer, are the temple of God. Now, there's a lot of ramifications there. You are the temple of God. God dwells with you. And that has ethical implications that we could spend the rest of our lives considering. But the most, the most expressed way for the temple to be revealed is not individually, but corporately. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says the church is the temple of the living God. And Jesus is as committed to his new covenant temple as he was the old covenant temple. And do you see what Jesus had to do to secure this temple for us? To purify this temple for us? And here's the question again. Is there a growing zeal for the temple, the new covenant temple in your life? Again, you cannot be committed to Jesus unless you're committed to what he is committed to. He is committed to his temple. He died that we might be the temple. This is also a word to every non-Christian, those who are not yet believers. It's not a judgment statement. I was you and everyone else here was you at some point. We're not born Christians. But here's the question. Do you see from this passage what Jesus thinks of sin? He started with the religious leaders, but he's not going to be done until all sin is judged. He hates sin. God's wrath is on sin. But here's the good news. He so hates it, and he so loves us, that he absorbed the wrath for that sin. If you'll receive his provision. But you have to humble yourself. You have to recognize I'm a sinner I deserve the judgment that God is pouring out on sin and Jesus took it and I'm going to confess that today so as Adam and the musicians come forward we want to give you an opportunity we're going to have pastors here at the end of the aisles to speak to you pray with you if you would like to be a Christian if you would like to if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian uh, we would love to talk to you. Maybe you just want to pray with us. Whatever the need is, let's stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.